This is the Horse Radio Network. This is episode 96 of the Dressage Radio Show, brought to you with the generous support of Kentucky Performance Products, Equestrian Collections, and Equisketch. I'm Chris Stafford, and on the show this week, Madeline and Liz Austin. And Brett Parbury is back from a somewhat over-adventurous trip. Brett, welcome back, and I'm so glad you're back safely. Oh, thank you, Chris. It's great to be back. And, and yeah, there's never a dull moment in the life of a, of a traveling dressage coach, that's for <laughs> sure. <laughs> well, as I said, over-adventurous, just a little bit more drama than you really were expecting you uh, we should explain, when, if those of you watched or rather listened to the show a few weeks ago when Brett was on, he was heading off to Europe to see his horse, Lord of Loxie, and ride him uh, with Edgar and uh, Hans-Peter Minderhood, and then was going to go home via uh, Japan to do a clinic. And you can take the story from there, Brett. Yeah, so, Chris, I went to, to Europe and watched um, and, and rode Lord of Loxley with Edward, and, and that's another story for later on how he's going. Um, but there was due to go back via Japan and work for the Japanese Federation, uh, coaching their squad. And um, we were about five days into a seven-day clinic, and this is on the Friday afternoon, and we were located just at the bottom of Mount Fuji in a place called Gotemba, which um, the the uh, the National Training Centre is located at this place, and it's a beautiful facility. And we were there on the Friday afternoon, and I had them all writing tests. So we had a girl in the in the arena writing a test, and I'm busily sort of giving feedback and giving marks, and we're jotting down notes. And there was one girl warming up, and next thing, uh, Hiro Kitahara, who's a Japanese rider, he's a Japanese team rider from Kentucky, he was my scribe at the time, and he said, oh, did you feel that, Brett? And I said, no, what was that? And he said... Um, Oh, I think I just felt an earthquake. And um, I thought, oh, okay. Well, I thought, you know, these Japanese guys, they always feel earthquakes. I won't get too concerned. And um, next thing, sort of the, the ground lifted and went down again. And, and, um, and I felt at that time, and I thought, oh, okay. And then I looked around the group around me, and they're all sort of wide-eyed and looking at each other. And I thought, That's, this is not a good sign. So... Um, I quickly told the girls to let's get out of this building and, and get outside in the open. So we all went out into this big car park. And I've never been in earthquake, so it was new for me. But what happened then after was that we had this rumbling sort of coming from from underneath Mount Fuji. And um, and it, you could hear it coming. It was amazing. And, and next thing you know, the, the bitumen car park just started turning into this I just keep describing it like a waterbed or like a trampoline it just becomes such as sort of lifting and, and dropping very slowly though and a moving eerie feeling under your feet the horses got a little bit they got a bit hot I mean they, they were they were sensitive but they weren't crazy um, they didn't react before the earthquake which I thought they may have been a little more instinctive to react before it, um, but they didn't. They only reacted at the moment that the, the, the ground started to move. Um, 
but yeah, and then we we proceeded then to get a few more aftershocks. The power went out, which is at the moment that the that nuclear thing blew up, and we we went on training and did our thing at the clinic, and we finished that up, and we all jumped in the car and went back into town. It's only at that stage we found out exactly what what had happened. You know, all the power was out, and there were sirens going everywhere, and our people everywhere and and then we proceeded to sort of spend the next 12 or 12 or more hours without power and um and middle of winter and it was cold like the, i found it colder in japan than i did in europe and um yes yeah, so in the floor of the hotel not allowed in our room and the whole thing so and then when the power eventually came on we then started to get news reports on what had actually happened it was just horrific you know and the japanese people they're so Lovely, and they're so um, oh, I don't know. There's a, there's a calmness and a, and a and a real honourable sort of culture there, and they were just so good amongst the whole um, devastation of the, of the thing and the whole uh, shock of it. They were great, and um, yeah. So then I was lucky enough that like I said before the moons just lined up for me and I just was lucky enough to get out on the on the, the the flight where I was due to go out the Japanese Federation were fantastic they escorted me to the airport and just saw me right to the gate to get me on the flight they were fantastic so um it was, a, it was an experience that that was just um you know like it's another chapter in the story of my life but you know, when you look at what happened up there, it was just incredible, absolutely incredible. Mm. So how far were you from the epicenter of the earthquake and, and what time of day was it when it struck and affected you? So we were 180 kilometres southwest. So we are up in the mountains, so absolutely no threat of tsunami or anything like that. It happened at... Um, the actual recorded time for the the incident up in uh, the north of Japan was 2:46, and it's funny when we were watching back our videos the next day because we were videoing the test where the where where the earthquake came through. The video scanned past the clock on the wall just before we quit, um, before I told the girl to stop, and it had 2:50 on the clock on the wall, so it was slightly after. So I imagine these things these things work like a uh, a, um, when you drop a pebble into a pond and you see the rippling effect, I mean, it took four minutes to get to us from the 2:46 recorded time through to where we were. It was a size six earthquake where we were, um, and and um, yeah, so we were close enough to get a, a good feel for it. It's actually funny because Mount Fuji's a, a dormant volcano so it's not extinct so you know there's always a threat that Mount Fuji might come to life again so that was always on the back of our minds as well and it actually was spoken about briefly in Japan on the news that Mount Fuji might come alive again and I thought well you know we're, we're at the foot of this thing this is not a great place to be um, but yeah you know I was talking to a an English traveller who was in the um, restaurant at the at the airport and I was talking to him, and he was in he was in Tokyo through the whole thing. And he said he told me this thing, which I really re- will remember. He said, you know, through the whole chaos 
of the earthquake when the underground system was cut out and everything was was people there were hundreds of thousands of people in Tokyo trying to get home on Friday afternoon. Some people had you know twenty odd miles to go to get home. He said not one person stole a push bike uh, a cycle a bicycle. He said there were people lined up to buy bicycles and they were lined up beside bikes that had no locks on them or nothing. He said they just stood there and he said there was this real calm amongst hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people trying to get home. They were calm as can be. Not one person broke a road rule. He said it was just absolutely unbelievable. And he said it was a it was a calm that um, was was done because they knew that was the best way to get the job done. They knew that if they all stayed calm and they all stayed courteous to one another and they all stayed to the rules, everyone would get home safely. And that's a real, um, you, you can learn a lot from that. Certainly in the face of chaos and disaster such as they experienced, and they are known, of course, for being a very dignified people and a and have a certain serenity to them anyway, don't they? So that clearly stood them in good stead. And what an amazing story, Brett. So you were out of there, you were airborne then within 48 hours of the earthquake striking. Yeah, yeah, about 48 hours, a bit bit over 48 hours after I was out of there. So um, uh, it was just lucky that my plane had flown in, and luckily I was flying out of Singapore because I, I came back via from Europe. So the Singapore flight was allowed to land the next morning after the earthquake. But they were they were sort of opening and closing airports just in accordance with aftershocks and and information that was coming through. So it was just lucky that my plane flew in. Narita was closed, so my plane was put into Haneda Airport in near Tokyo, and um, and I was lucky enough to. It was all, and the Federation just kept on to that. For me, they really were getting all the latest information on whether the flight was going to leave. And um, as I said, they just escorted me to the gate. Have so, you uh, heard any experiences of people that you've known or, or, or knew um, that that were closer to the earthquake uh, that felt no, it? No, none of the people that we were working with or that I know... Well, Miyako Yagi, who is a Japanese team rider, mm-hmm. she's the rider of Gao Jones, mm-hmm. her and I had dinner the night before, and she said, oh, tomorrow I'm going up to the north of Japan to see my foal. She has a foal up there. And so she was driving up there, and the earthquake hit, and she was. She said it normally takes two hours for her to get from, from Tokyo to where she had to go to see the foal. When the earthquake hit, came through, she stopped, she decided, no, I will turn around and go home. It took her 14 hours to get home, oh. in, sitting in her car for 14 hours. And she, because there was so much, the, the, the mobile phone system was just absolutely jammed with people wanting to call each other. So you couldn't get calls in or out. I spoke to her the next afternoon. And she, she rang me to see if I was okay. I mean, she, it was the first time she could get through. And she told me the story of where she was going north and the earthquake came and the road lifted up and went down and she stopped. And then she turned around, took her 14 hours to get back into Tokyo. And, um, yeah, but really, I don't know anybody who was affected, um, you know, by the tsunami or, or any devastation of the earthquake. 
And what about her foal? Uh, I didn't hear, but I imagine, look, the way, when I experienced that earthquake, I mean, um, if you're in open area, and I imagine her, the, the foal would be up in the thoroughbred studs, which I think is a much higher area, because it really affected the coastal, the coastal villages. But when, when I went through that earthquake, if you're in an open space, you really don't get affected much at all. It's only things like buildings collapsing or tsunami which really hurt or affect you. Um, so, yeah, she didn't mention anything was happened to the foal or anything like that, so <clears throat> I think it's fine. But, well, um, what a relief. Has it deterred you from going back to Japan? Oh, no, definitely not. No, I, I'll, go, I'll go back there. I mean, I've, they're a great group of people to work with. I, I love working with them, and um, I love going to Asia from Australia. From Australia, it's perfect to go into Asia because it's close and they're thirsty for information and knowledge and they've got some nice horses over there and they're, they're federations which are trying to, to push forward and try to become involved and they've got their Asian their Asian games and things so they've got a lot more they've actually got a lot more things happening than than we do um, when it comes to competition I mean they've got they've got sea games in Southeast Asia they've got Asian games for the whole of the Asian region Um then obviously World Equestrian Games and Olympic Games. I mean, Japan is in a very unique situation where they they compete in more championships than, than than we do, simply by the fact they have the Asian Games and they have a the Asian Games at small tour level. So they have a real job there for the small tour horses. So any horses that don't go Grand Prix, there's still a job for those horses in the small tour. Um, so they're a very progressive country when you talk about. You know, dressage, they're, they're really wanting to get up there and, and be a dominant force in the Asian region. Well, we would love to have one of those riders on the show, Brett. We talked about it, didn't we, last, uh, after we got off the air last time we spoke. And, yeah. uh, you know, maybe that we can uh, arrange that the next time you're on is to have someone from uh, the Japanese Federation or, or one of the riders to come and talk, yeah. to, about, talk to us about dressage in Japan. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, I could organise that. That's that's easy. I think that would be fun. Well, uh, I should mention that we heard from one of our very loyal listeners, Robert Dunn, who is an avid listener of the Dressage Radio Show, uh, and he uh, obviously wanted to hear your story. He heard that you were there during the earthquake, and uh, he extends his uh, condolences to everyone, and apparently all of his friends who were doing a show over there got home safely as well. Well, um, Robert, you've heard... Brett's story, it is an amazing story, and uh, we're very, very glad that Brett is home safely. We um, also have some great other news from Brett. Uh, it's all happening with you right now, isn't it, Jim? You've been appointed Australian eventing dressage coach. You, you're an ambassador for Equitana. You're a busy man. Yeah, I'm, I'm having a great time, Chris. It's, things are really starting to shape up for us. Um, yeah, the the... The question Australia have asked me, I've done some work with the New South Wales eventing squad and which happens to be, you know, a lot of the representative riders were, are in the squad, the New South Wales squad. So um, I've been, uh, let's say, I wouldn't say, I appointed, it's not really an official position, but someone has to do it. So I'm going around Australia doing the, the eventing coaching of the the sorry, the dressage coaching of the eventing riders, which I just absolutely love. They've got the best attitude 
um, when you're coaching them. And they've got the the Australian eventing. I keep saying this. They've got this winning culture amongst the group, and they've had they've been successful. We all know that. In in the past five Olympic games, there's been three gold medals, one silver, um, and so there's a culture there of winning that that I just love tapping into uh, as a sports person, you know, not even as a rider. Um, and I'm just loving it. I really am. It's um, it's refreshing, and it's, it's you talk to these guys, and and when I talk, when I do my coaching, especially to people who are at a high level, I, I talk about the strategy, and and when I talk their strategy, it's so much more wide scale there's wide scope you know they've got to talk about can this horse jump can it gallop um, is it brave enough does it handle water all these things outside of dressage so I just love talking to these guys about yeah so, there's a yeah. real can do attitude amongst them isn't there yeah yeah and it's eventing really fits the Australian mentality and mm-hmm. Australian culture it's, it's a real Australian it's, it's like a it's a can do it's a we will find a way. We'll we'll be we'll just do whatever it takes to get there. Where the dressage for us, for an Australian, for our Australian culture, is a little bit abnormal because it's so attention to detail uh, and so disciplined that Australian culture we don't really have that here as much as the European culture. So that's where eventing just seems to fit our culture a lot better. Um, but yeah, I've been doing a fair bit of that, working with the eventing guys. Of, um, I'm the ambassador for Equitana, or one of the ambassadors for Equitana this year. We're having a, a big Equitana this year. This is going to be probably the biggest ever. Um, there's some exciting news to come out on that fairly soon. Once um, once we start, once we finish negotiations, but that will be interesting. Um, doing a lot of work with Equestrian Australia in in working taking profile forward and trying to take Equestrian Australia to the commercial uh, arm of, of um, sponsorship and businesses. Um, I'm one of uh, five people who have been put forward as, let's say, the face of the Equestrian Australia. Um, there's a, a, a new magazine which is being released out here in June um, to which I'm a part of that, playing a part of that. And, um, and on top of that, my horses are just feeling fantastic at the moment. And um, I've, I've purposely kept Victory Salute home for the start of the year, knowing full well that at the end of the year, this year, I want him to be nice and fresh and fit. So I've kept him at home. Haven't been to any of the early CDIs. Rachel Senna is also using, doing the same strategy. She's bringing her horse out, um, JB Alabaster in Sydney, so her and I will be at Sydney at the end of April. And um, then I've been back to Lord of Loxley, and I must say, Edward Gall is... We all know he's amazing, but I'm, he's riding this Lord of Loxley unbelievably. The horse looks so good at home in training that I'm excited to be a part of that as well. So, yeah, it's all's good. When will, really you be compe- when will you be competing with him, Brett? I'm going to go back to in July and August, and I'm going to go small tour. We decided that let's take him out small tour and let's just see what he's like at shows because he's quite sharp. 
But then we thought, right, let's just go and see what he's like at shows. So I'm trying to, to make sure I get him to, to Verzon and Pompadour in France. Because I go for such a short time, I need to get shows that are back-to-back. So Verzon and Pompadour run a show a week apart. They're only 120 kilometers apart. So I'd like to go to there. Um, Arken is a very difficult show to get into, but I'd heard a bird told me that Arken were inviting... Uh, national federations to perhaps send a small tour team to Arkin, not only a team for the CHIO, for the CHIO, but a small tour team. So I'm hoping that maybe I can get into that because that fits beautifully in my plan. And plus Arkin is just an amazing show. Um, and then I'm hoping then to go to Hickstead. And I got I got uh, some information back from the people, the organisers of Hickstead to say that, yes, they would like us to go there in the small tour. So within four or five weeks, I can do four shows, which is just perfect. And it's a little bit too much if I was living there full-time. But for me, going on a, for a six-week stay, it's a perfect plan. So once I do that, once I do some small tour shows and get a feel of the horse and and give that feedback back to Edward, this is what he feels like, then we'll probably try and work out where we take him out in the big tour. Well, very exciting to have that prospect. And even if it is a long way away, um, it sounds like he's in pretty good hands. Oh, yeah. And look, Edward, Nicole, Hans-Peter, I just can't talk highly enough about them. They really are helping us. You know, it's this is this sort of stuff's beyond money. Um, they really are helping us to try and take this horse to the best of his ability. And um, and 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 for Australia, my lad, it's not even for Holland. It's for Australia. Um, and for me, that's beyond money. That you know, we, we're paying the same as everyone else. We're not paying extra. They're just doing it because they want to help, which I really. It's just nice to know that the, the, the best riders in the world have that attitude. Um, you know, it's real, we feel very special and honoured to be, be to be able to be in that stable and be a part of it. I mean, for me, when I went back there, it was like going home. It was mm. it was like I walked in the stable and said hello to everybody, and it was like it was like going home. It was really really great. That's very nice to have that other base on the other side of the world. Well, it sounds like it's all happening for you, Brett, and uh, we'll keep up with it all or try and keep up with you. Um, we've got a big show ahead of us uh, this week, so I want to remind you all before we get to our news about our sponsors, Equestrian Collections. Of course, you'll be digging out your show clothes and equipment for the spring season, and uh, you may find some of that is finally beyond repair. Well, there's an easy solution to that problem by visiting equestriancollections.com. They have the latest in spring and show clothing for you, your spouse, and your kids at prices you can afford. Not only do they have a great selection, great prices, and the -the state-of-the-art website, That is what you get for looking to Equestrian Collections, first of all, for your spring and showing needs at equestriancollections.com. Well, our news this week is about um, the Rennie Isler Dressage Support Fund that the Dressage Foundation has recently announced that they are providing grants to three individuals to further their dressage training and education. One of those is our guest this week, Liz Austin from Vermont, and the other two are Jasmine Becker from Colorado and Catherine Chamberlain from Arizona. They were selected by the, chosen by the selection committee to receive financial support. 
and uh, that funding will help, you know, is available for a variety of uses for dressage professionals and young riders. And the strong emphasis is placed on volunteerism, work ethic, and being respected in the community. Liz herself received $4,000 to train with Michael Barrison this spring, and her goal we will hear about uh, a little bit later on in the show. Um, where she's going to uh, aim with her horse, Olivia. So, uh, but before we do get to that, I want to remind you about uh, Kentucky Performance Products. And as you know, when horsemen were asked what they were looking for, for a new, in a nutritional supplement, the answer was easy. One that's affordable, effective, and scientifically proven. Kentucky Performance Products took that message to heart and developed supplements that meet those needs. All of their supplements, from Nalox, Equine Antacid to Summer Games Electrolytes and Joint Armor, are formulated based on sound research. The important thing is that you can count on them to deliver results, and they're affordable too. So to choose the right KPP supplement for your horse, visit kppusa.com or call 1-800-772-1988. And to learn more about horse nutrition and interact with the KPP experts, be sure to visit their Facebook page. Well, Brett, we're coming to our guests this week, Madeline and Liz Austin. It's a mother and daughter team. And these uh, were suggested, I have to say, by another very loyal listener to the Dressage Radio Show, and that is Liz Call. She has been on the show herself in the past. And Liz, uh, I know that this is uh, somebody that you suggested I should have on the show. And, And Liz, of course, Liz Austin, that is, has been achieving some great results down in uh, Wellington, Florida, this winter. So uh, here, uh, the special request of Liz Call is our guest this week, Madeline and Liz Austin. Madeline, you're up in the frozen north of Vermont, I believe. That's correct. I'm up where the sun uh, does not shine that often and the snow appears to be still coming down. Um, But the prospect of spring is still around the corner. And your daughter, Liz, is the lucky one who's still down in Wellington. Hi, Liz. (laughs) 82 degrees, according to my truck uh, thermometer. Oh, very nice, too. Well, I wanted to get you both on the show because you you have this interesting combination. It's a team affair. Um, I know that you have a sales business. You have a a breeding business, sales business, and, of course, a successful competition uh, barn as well. Um, I want to start with you, uh, Liz, if I may, because you've had a terrific time down in Wellington. Tell us about uh, the ribbons that you've been collecting over this sure. win- se- this season so far. Well, for sure, it's been a very, very successful season. Um, we started sort of on a quest to try, try and qualify, hopefully, for the World Cup, um, and that started with arriving down in Florida the very, very end of December. And then we did um, one horse show in one big CDI in January and then one big CDI in February and then two big CDIs in March. So it's been a pretty, pretty crazy season for, uh, for my stallion, but he's been absolutely fantastic. We did two um, freestyles at World Cup qualifiers with scores over 70, um, which was really, really exciting. So we almost, 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 I think, squeaked into the World Cup, but not quite. So... Anyway, um, I'm still really happy, and hopefully we've qualified for the national championships in uh, September for the Grand Prix, so that should be great. And uh, he's actually, I was just joking with someone, he's now enjoying what we call Adventure Hack Week, where we go sort of on random hacking adventures throughout White Fences, which is a big dressage community. So we're having quite a nice time. (laughs) Well, tell us about your horse. This is Oliver, your longtime partner, isn't it? 
Yeah, it is. And um, I've been riding him, gosh, I guess for eight years now. Somehow that happened. Um, and I rode him on and off sort of when he was, um, you know, a little bit as a three-year-old and four-year-old. But he really just, um, you know, I was younger and he, I had no experience really with stallions. And he was a big, strong young stallion. And although he wasn't particularly mean or naughty, he was a little bit daunting thinking, well, what happens if I do come off? So um, he uh, really became my ride in 2003. And I've been, you know, pretty, we've been pretty inseparable ever since. So. Well, you certainly have. Madeleine, I want to come to you because there's a story behind this horse. It all goes back to your family business. Uh, Tell us how he came about. Well, I imported his mother um, in 1986. She was um, 10 months in full. Um, And I bought her because in 1982 I had gone to Holland and I bought several horses. Um, one of them being a yearling um, who became a very successful dressage horse for me. Um, and he also, uh, he eventually became a Grand Prix horse. Um, not as good a Grand Prix horse as Olivier, but um, certainly good enough. Um, but anyway, he was such a nice horse. I went to Holland and I bought this wonderful, wonderful, very old-fashioned fat mare, um, highly pregnant, um, and... She produced many, many nice horses for me, all of whom had uh, a great propensity to Piaf and Passage. Um, and <clears throat> Olivier uh, was the result of a breeding to her um, using Idicus. And I had I'd seen Idicus, I'd seen his video as a, as a baby, um, as a three-year-old, and he looked very much and moved very much like um, one of this mare's other offspring. And I thought, well... You know, this this is a very gifted-looking young horse. Let's let's see what happens. And Olivier, from the moment he was born in 1996, I knew that he was going to be left a stallion um, because everything about him said I should be a stallion. Um, he had he had just an enormous amount of presence and um, the, the the fabulous fabulous movement that never left him, no matter what ugly duckling stage he went through, um, that was, you know, easily developed into what he is today. And um, he, uh, he, he's certainly the, the pinnacle and the epitome, or the, you know, the pinnacle of, of what every breeder would like to produce. And mind you, every horse I ever bred, I, I bred for myself, and he was bred for me. But uh, by the time... Um, by the time um, I, you know he was riding age, I had this daughter who was incredibly talented, and I was no longer particularly interested in in working hard enough to go and compete an international horse. So um, I kept trying to give him to Elizabeth, and she kept telling me she didn't like him very much, and thank you very much, Mom, but you keep him. <laughs> so um, <laughs> so finally. Um, I, I, um, I, I sent him with her to Florida, and actually Elizabeth and I were talking about this not too long ago. Um, she went down to work with Jen Baumer. She wanted to go and spend the, the winter in Florida, and I said, "Well, you know, take you know, take Susie, and you know, since you don't like him, perhaps you can sell him down there or something." Um, but uh, Jen, we have we have to, to thank uh, forever for actually making Elizabeth like um, Olivier, and the rest is pretty much history. 
Well, certainly cemented a very firm partnership there. But let's talk a little bit more, Madeline, about your business. And, you know, you've been involved with the sport for a long time, breeding and training and, and, uh, and selling horses, of course. And this must mm-hmm. have been the inspiration for Liz to follow in your footsteps. Tell us about the family business that you have there up in Vermont. Well, it, it, basically, um, it, it is it's a, it's a training a training establishment. Um, we do a small amount of breeding, um, trying always to breed very very high end foals, but only producing really um, one or two, sometimes none uh, per year. Um, but we have mostly dressage horses. Um, occasionally, we will have a jumper, and in terms of of, uh, of clients here, mostly dressage riders, but also occasionally someone who has an interest in jumping. It's always been my feeling um, that any good horse should have the option to go either way, because if um, if he does not want to be a dressage horse, let's hope he can jump and at least do something for someone. Um, and that for so far that's worked pretty well. <laughs> Occasionally we have one that doesn't really have much of a job, <laughs> but um, <laughs> we we don't talk about that. <laughs> 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 well, Liz, so, you you obviously got launched uh, in your career at a very early late early age. It must have been the the influence of of what how you grew up. You've been riding since you were knee high to a fetlock. It, I, I guess you couldn't imagine doing anything else. Do you remember the early days and and the influence that your mother had on you and shaping your interest in horses? Um, I I would say the number one way that she shaped my interest was by never pressuring me. Um, There was no pressure for me to show. I didn't have to do lessons. I didn't have to really do much, you know, as long as, as long as I took care of my pony and, you know, obviously spend some time in the barn, which she never had to ask me to do. I think that it's super, super important that, you know, parents don't put too much pressure on their kids because God knows that plenty of them don't really want to actually do the horses, and they end up sort of doing it to make their parents happy. And so I would say that's the number one influence that she had on me is that I have no recollection when I was little or, you know, really at any point of having to ever take it too too seriously, if that makes sense. And so as a result, I took it very seriously and always, always, always wanted to do it and loved to do it. So that's my best advice. <laughs> so. It's it's rather like, you know, if you want to go and catch a horse that's difficult, just pretend you don't want to catch him. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> a little reverse psychology. Exactly. Madeline, of course, in those early days when Liz was growing up, you, you spotted a talent there. It, tell us what you saw in, in her ability and early skills as a rider. Well, you know, the, the child rolls in utero. <laughs> so, <laughs> and when, when she was a baby, um, I would, I'm sure much to the dismay of, of, um, any, um, any parenting organization, I would hold her in front of me and do, um, tempi changes, pirouettes, piaf and passage, and she would laugh the whole time. And I'm talking a baby who couldn't walk. <laughs> so, um, in terms, of her talent, um, um, you know, I, I think I think that became um, she. She has the ability to focus and to concentrate, which any dressage rider needs to have, and she had that at a very very early age. And um, 
in terms of in terms of talent to do the hard stuff, you don't you know it's like it's like with a horse. Um, it's exactly like with a horse. You don't know until you ask it. So, um, when, you know, she did her first dressage show. I think she was five. In, in or no, she was six. In her, her first recognized dressage show, in which she won a training level class. Um, but as you know, she always had the interest in in training the horse and in, in teaching the horse and making the horse better, um, which obviously that's that's an inherited trait. But um, she also always understood, even though sometimes there were some needs to remind her that um, it doesn't matter how long it takes you, as long as what you accomplish always is done in a kind way and in a humane way. And that, that's one of the reasons that... Um, all of her horses and any horse that she rides um, loves her, and I think that the, 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 that was that was obvious to me with her uh, with her first. I won't say with her first pony. Her first pony was rather an evil creature, but certainly her <laughs> second pony. Who was she? Her first pony was nine hands high and basically untrained. Um, <laughs> but, <laughs> She looked. She could not have looked more like a Falwell pony. I mean, with she had a gigantic head and big nostrils and the big bushy mane. But her second pony, who um, I had for many, many years in my riding school and, and used him for a school pony, he would see her and he would call to her. And, and I think every horse that she's ever turned her eyes to has fallen in love with her, absolutely and unequivocally. Um, it's it's a bit of a joke um, because when she moves from one to the next one, the one who's been the one who's been abandoned is a bit like a forsaken lover. <laughs> but, um, so you know the the, the the innate talent was always obvious. Um, the, the the coming to fruition of it, um, I think, well, to a mother obviously, or to a mother that's always relatively obvious, even if other people don't see it. <laughs> So, Liz, for you, it, it was just a natural progression, was it, then, when you decided what you were going to do when you grew up and when you left school? It was always going to be dressage, was it? Yep, yep, for sure. And you went through the Young Rider ranks. You had a, a very credible record there during, through Young Riders. That yep. that obviously, you know, with horses that set, set your career up and you and you got very, uh, uh, I mean, your your um, list of influences are, um, are, are a who's who in the dressage world. You, you've trained with some uh, leading riders and trainers. Yep, absolutely. I, I had some pretty incredible opportunities. Um, but one thing I would say to up-and-coming riders out there, if you're listening, is at the end of the day, if you don't get to do young riders or you don't get to train with a bunch of cool, fancy, awesome trainers. It's really not the end of the world because at the end of the day, and you look at the list of people that are successful in the sport right now, most of them did not do young riders. Most of them had a good trainer that they believed in and stuck with, and slowly but surely, you make it to the top of the sport. So that's another good sort of little bit of advice because it's easy to say, oh, well, she did young riders and she did this and she did that. It, at the end of the day, if you stick with a good training program and you're diligent and you want it, you can be successful and throw in a little talent, hopefully. So um, that, you know, again, it's, uh, you know, for sure it was really, really fun to do the Young Rider program and to do the Brentina Cup and all that stuff. But um, I wouldn't say that you can, 
you can still be successful, I would say, without it. Well, Madeline, tell us about the other horses that you have that you're hopefully you're breeding and producing for Liz to ride in the ring. Um, well, she actually has she has one of our best ones down in Florida with her right now. Um, it's a son of Olivier out of a Jerusalem there who had a career as a Grand Prix dressage horse in her own right, and um, his name is Coltrane, and he was born on the fourth of July. In, uh, let me see, well, what, what are the four years ago was? Um, and two days before him, um, we had another one who is, uh, a horse, um, out of, um, one of Olivier's half sisters, who was one of my, one of my, one of my competition horses, who was a wonderful mare, um, by a horse named Thatcher. So Elizabeth has two coming four-year-olds down there, um, Coral Train um, already, after only eight rides, goes walk trot canter, uh, apparently goes on trail rides around the arena and has started jumping. So and <laughs> so he, he's um, he's probably going to be the, the next big one. And behind those two guys, um, I have um, there there was the girl here. So we have a couple of fillies, um, two fillies. Um, both by Olivier and also uh, three-year-old Gelding. Um, so we have three three-year-olds, and then behind them we have a yearling by Olivier out of a very, very fancy Balsflugmere. Um, her name is Flirtini, um, and she's... Um, um, how can I put this delicately? Uh, I can't put it, put it delicately. She thinks she's the queen of the world, and <laughs> everyone needs to get out of her way, please, now. Um, so <laughs> so, so that, we, there, there's quite a, quite a lineup of horses um, for, for her to develop. Um, I think that her plate is probably pretty full for, for a bit in terms of um, homebred horses. It certainly and think, is. And how many horses do you ride a day at the moment, Liz? Oh my gosh, um, a lot. Usually around, I'd say between like eight and ten, or nine and eleven, somewhere between there. Okay, a and, lot. And this is down in Wellington, and and but you you will be heading back north, will you, at the uh, end of the Florida season, back up to Vermont? Yeah, I will. Exactly. We're gonna head home the end of April, and I'll probably be bringing seven or eight home with me, and then uh, hopefully my. A couple of sales horses down here will get sold, and then um, you know head home and then start some more uh, some of the baby horses under saddle up there. So presumably, although it's in the family, there's a nice commission for you for selling these horses that you've produced. Uh, there <laughs> <it> is. <laughs> for sure. The ones, the ones that she lets me sell. <laughs> ah, well, she should be able to get the pick of the litter, so to speak. She's allowed to have the pick of the litter, but I'll tell you, every year there's an own book mom. You can't tell that one. I love him. (laughs) Well, Liz, tell us what the summer looks like for you. What are your plans? You know, it's actually looking pretty relaxed, but it always seems that way and it never happens. Um, I have a very, very, very good, uh, just about ready to come out Grand Prix horse that um, I've actually been training a bit with Kathy Connolly, which has been fantastic. Um, and so he'll have some shows this summer, and then I have some young horses, uh, as my mom mentioned, that I'll do some showing. And then, um, you know, usually I try and get in a few, like the developing rider clinics at Debbie McDonald are fantastic. 
and hopefully I'll get down with Olivier to Michael Barris films a little bit. So probably a little bit more emphasis on training this summer than showing. Last summer was pretty wild because um, we had the national championships in August, and then, uh, you know, we did a couple of qualifiers for the World Equestrian Games. So this summer I think will be a little bit more about training and a little bit less about showing. Um, but I think it'll be, you know, for sure very, very fun and lots of learning going on, which makes me happy. So, Well, Madeline, do you get much time to go around the shows? Or are you busy at home? How, does, how do you mix your, uh, juggle your schedule between your commitments at home, breeding and, and, and showing and so on, and, and Liz's career? Um, I... I I think I probably go to most of her competitions, um, and the you know I mean the, when when Olivia is showing, there's no breeding, so <laughs> it's not a problem. Yeah. Um, um, I went. I just returned. I, I went to three shows in Florida with her this year, um, and generally am there as um. um I'm not sure what my function is, but I think it's probably needed. <laughs> uh, are you a nervous mum standing on the sidelines? Um, I'm not as nervous as Michael Barrison. <laughs> <laughs> Michael and I are old friends, so we we actually we do a little a little bit of tag teaming. Um, but Lizzie's not supposed to know that. Um, but no, I know I, I, I don't get I don't get nervous. I think probably I ride every step with her. Um, and obviously, if um, there is uh, anything that goes wrong, my heart sinks through my feet. But um, no, I think I'm, I think I'm a, a pretty good um, cheerleader. How about you, Liz? You know, with having such a close relationship and a business relationship with a, a mother, that does that put any pressure on you? How do you feel when you're actually competing? I'm actually a really good competitor, and I'm in a funny way. Like, if anything does go wrong, I actually compete better, if that makes sense. Like, I'm better when the chips are down for this day. Um, but, no, my mom's – I mean, it is – I'm realizing the more I talk to people that have um, sponsors, it's hard. It, it's really hard, and the thing is, with my, like, if it's family, it doesn't matter if I do great or if I don't do great. She's – thrilled with me anyway because the whole thing is a big learning process right and uh you know for sure I have days where I go oh I messed up you know I messed that up I'm really sorry and she just always sort of smiles and says there's always tomorrow and there's no oh I'll pull the horse or any of that stuff it's it's a pretty amazing experience you know and you you don't appreciate that initially but I sure am starting to more and more so (laughs) it's a pretty great pretty great deal well, Madeline, for you, obviously having a daughter that uh, shares your passion with horses, what would you describe as your dream come true? If What would be the ideal uh, situation in terms of achievement that you would be able to say at the end of the day, well, that was my dream come true? Oh, you know, that's already happened. <laughs> oh. <laughs> and, and what was that moment? Well, no, I think the whole journey, um, the development of the child, the development of the horse um, to, you know, be um, international Grand Prix competitors, um, I think that's, um, you know, everything beyond that, going to the Olympics, going to the World Equestrian Games, going... um, I mean, you know, those are the the two biggies, obviously. Um, 
three people get to go, and maybe luckily, luckily four people get to go from any nation. So the odds of that happening are very small. But, you know, if you're an also-ran, even though people not, might not remember that you were an also-ran, you, you know it. And with dressage, the process is, for me anyway, more important than the culmination. The training, the everyday, the being with the horse, the tr- bringing the horse along, saying, boy, this is better than it was yesterday. That's, that's, that's the, that's the life goal. That's the, uh, that's the bigger gift. The ribbons, I mean, who, you know, you, when you're 12 years old, some, someone always says to you, oh, well, blue ribbons always turn purple with age. <laughs> <laughs> Ultimately, you know, um, every horse you train, every every um, beautiful ride that you have, um, that's that's the gift. That that is the gift. So yeah, no, my my dream has come true, really. How about you, Liz? Uh, what means the most to you at the end of the day when you close the door? Um, I mean, for sure, I think that my horses are very very happy. And they're proud of themselves, and they think that they are amazing. I think that that's very important. And, you know, of course, I'm quite young, so, of course, I would love to, if not with Olivier, with someone else maybe, to go to the Olympics or go to the World Equestrian Games or, you know, insert exciting event, right? But uh, I think having a happy horse that gets to go trail riding and not just live a monotonous life of every day in a little stupid sandbox um, you know, if I can give that life to horses and give that to my training horses and make them really happy about about everything, I think that that, for me, is what's the most important part of it all. It certainly is the journey. Well, I want to thank you both for sharing a part of your journey with us here on the show today. Thank you so much, and good luck for the rest of the season in the competition arena and in the breeding barn. Thank you. Thank you very, very much. Well, our thanks again to them. And uh, as I mentioned, Liz Call, our regular listener here, I think she and Robert, do we have the two uh, very, very loyal listeners here, Brett? Uh, the, between Liz Call and Robert Dunn, they compete to see who's the first one to listen to the show each week and post their comments on Facebook on our fan page. Uh, so it's, it's a great <laughs> show, Chris, so I can, I can understand why they listen. It's a, it's a fantastic show. You're doing a great job. Well, that's very sweet of you, and I know they're, uh, they're loyal listeners when you're on too. And uh, I, I should mention, though, before uh, we go any further, that Liz did ask me if I would mention the passing of Kira Kirkland's master. Of course, he was the sire of uh, Kira's Max, her Grand Prix horse, a team horse for many, many years. And, uh, of course, he passed, Master passed away very recently. And, uh, of course, Leslie Morse is tip-top. And she also, it seems um, that Liz um, lost a horse too, her beloved Caddy Master. So, Liz, I'm sorry to hear that. Uh, presumably that's uh, one of your own horses that you lost. Uh, so just for you, Liz, um, we will remember uh, Master, Kira Kirkland's Master, and, of course, Leslie Morse's tip-top. Um, oh, that's well, pretty sad. Well, I think it was sad, Chris. Kingston. I don't think she means uh, tip top. I think she means Kingston. Kingston. Oh, Kingston. Yeah. Yeah. He passed. He passed away. But it's always sad when these old horses, um, you know, leave us after a long, yeah. long service. They're, they're friends. I can probably add another one. I can add another one to that. Uh, Whisper Four. Oh yes. Saying that I was re- that I rode over here. We sold to New Zealand. He was put down 
last week. It actually, I got the message in Japan. Uh, so that's also very sad. We've had a, a, a sad week with that one. Yes, I, re- I did read that too, Brett. Absolutely. Mm. Well, I want to remind you all about another one of our sponsors, Equisketch. And this, uh, Brett, if you are, are you into technology and apps and all that good stuff, your new, new media? Mm. Uh, no, I'm not. I, w- I should be, but usually the, I just get the nearest 10-year-old kid to come <laughs> and show me how to do this stuff. <laughs> Well, when you listen to this, you maybe you'll be converted because Equisketch is a great new company dedicated to providing the best mobile apps for every rider. Each app has been designed to be used by riders of all ages and all levels of experience. With Equisketch Dressage, you can replace your dressage paper or dry erase boards and begin learning all your dressage tests on your iPhone or iPad. The Equisketch board allows you to study in a flash-style card flashcard style by hiding the step instructions while visualizing your location in the arena. Every test can also be viewed in a written format and later shared with your dressage students or fellow riders. Equisketch Records allows you to manage all your horses and shows on the go. Track every medication, vet visit, dental exam, farrier work and more, complete with built-in reminders. Equisketch has some of the best-selling equestrian apps on the iTunes App Store, which have already been purchased in over 35 countries. They're available for the iPhone, iPad, and iPod Touch. So visit equisketch.com hrn for more information or search Equisketch in iTunes. Equisketch, dedicated to making your equestrian life mobile, one app at a time. You know, we have several listeners and riders that come on the show, Brett, that uh, use that. It, it sounds like a great toy. Yeah, that's that's incredible. I've never heard of that before. That's really, really, that's fantastic. And I think they've got something for the rainers as well, too. So, um, yeah. you know, if you want to have it at your fingertips without uh, having to get a, find a paper and pen, that it sounds like the new media way to go. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, we're coming to the end of the show. I want to uh, first of all remind you that we have a very special guest coming up in just a few weeks. This is Connie Dye, and I'm looking forward to being on the Dressage Radio Show next month. I know you have all been following me all along, so I wanted to tell you everything that's going on with me because you've been so supportive. Well, I am delighted to tell you that Courtney will be on the show on April 22nd. So if you have any questions for Courtney, please send them to me a few days before. We'll probably record that around April the 18th. So please send those questions over to me, chris at horseradionetwork.com. And, of course, you can follow us on Facebook, as always. You can visit our show notes at dressageradio.com. You can listen to us on your iPod, on your um, MP3 player. Just go to iTunes and download the free app there, Whole Way Feeds, that carries all the shows here on the Horse Radio Network. And remember, we have a free trial offer for Horse Radio Network listeners. Just click on the link on our website to sign up to audible.com. There you can try uh, Audible. Um, books on tape, I should say. Well, we used to call them books on tape, didn't we? That was before everything was digitized. Do you listen to books on the go when you're driving, Brett, or are you a music um, man? 
No, a music man, but when I get on the plane, sometimes I'll listen to a book. It's oftentimes better than, than watching some of the movies, and I'm like, yeah, I can do listen to the book on the plane, which is often quite nice. Yeah, it's a, it's a great way to in, digest a book, I have to say. Uh, yeah. So we, we'll put a link on our website to audible.com where you can try that free trial for uh, an audio book. And uh, don't forget to follow us on Facebook and uh, on Twitter, Chris E. Stafford and Horse Radio. And as always, we love to hear from you. Send me an email, chris at horseradionetwork.com. Well, that just about wraps it up for us this week, Brett. I want to uh, thank our guests, Madeline and Liz Austin, and for our listeners who write in with the suggestions and comments. We love to hear from you. And, and Brett, what's in store for you now? I, I, you're not going back to Japan anytime soon, I know, but uh, you're never short of an adventure. No, that's right. You know, the Australian culture is to, to get out there and adventure, and I'm certainly living, living <laughs> that. But no, for us, we've got Sydney CDI at the end of April. I'd like, I'm going. Well, actually, I'm going to New Zealand at the end of next week uh, for four days, just teaching. Uh, then I have a few of the New Zealand combinations coming here to prepare middle of April for the Sydney CDI, and then we'll stay home through most of April preparing for the CDI and just making sure that you know, for, for us it's difficult. We don't have a CDI every week. We have to make sure that we're on target at a certain time. So we have to make sure our horses are going well prior to you know the one cdi that we have um at this time of the year so yeah that'll be my focus for april well it sounds as like you're going to be busy and i hope you'll find time to come back in a few weeks brett yeah definitely chris love the show love coming on and, and really love being a part of um of putting dressage out there into the into the the, the world um listeners and and really taking the sport forward you're really doing a great job well thank you brett well i will of course be back here same time same place next week so until then thank you all for listening and thank you all for listening as well from from uh, australia thank you